and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Vogelman. My guest this week is actress and singer Eileen Graff. Eileen, probably best known for portraying Marsha Owens on Mr. Belvedere, a great show that lasted about six seasons. She started a career on Broadway. She was Sandy in Greece, among other roles she had in different productions. And she worked with some great comedic legends, guest starring on certain shows, John Ritter on Grease Company, Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy, and she co-starred alongside Ronnie Dangerfield in Ladybugs, that great uh, underrated movie. Uh, she had a fabulous career. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, and she's from Queens, so my hometown, so we talked a little bit about it as well. I hope you enjoy my conversation with her. So, Eileen, I know before I, before when I reached out to you, I told you that uh, you went to school with my mom, or both at the same time at Martin Van Buren in, uh, right. in Queens. Yeah. What, what, you grew up in Bayside? Is that where you grew up? No, I grew up in Glen Oaks okay. and in Belrose. Okay. Uh, yeah, so Bayside is a little north of where where I was. Okay. Uh, but uh, Van Buren and sadly, Martin Van Buren has been hit, the families have been hit very, very hard by the virus. In fact, Queens Village has one of the highest rates of coronavirus in the in the state so it's been really hard on the school community yeah I, I can definitely imagine and also the um the budgets of the schools are going to be hit pretty hard dur- during all this and it's 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 really uh really sad my wife teaches in connecticut and they're going through oh. and it's all, all of them my mom was an, an educator so she retired a couple of years ago but yeah it's it's sad to see all the ramifications from all of this yeah yeah. So driving by, like, um, on Hillside Avenue, you know, we're going to go would pass the school, and then they had this clock that was up against the, the wall uh, outside. And right. Yeah, so she, she told me that they had a choice between that clock and a swimming pool in the school, and they decided to go with the clock outside. So I always found that to be interesting. <laughs> Why would they decide to do with, you know, a stupid clock that you know, anyone <laughs> see what time it is and then rather than have a pool inside you know the school but i never heard that story yeah i guess it was always easier to maintain a clock than it would be a pool inside a school so i guess that's probably why they decided to go that route (laughs) and you know my memory of um those three years well i only spent two years in the big school pardon me as a baby boomer there were zillions of us and there were many of us all to fit in the the school building proper so in our 10th grade year there was a whole bunch of us that didn't even go to the building we went to what they called the annex which was in jamaica so we had to get on a city bus and go all the way to jamaica to be in this completely other building i don't even remember if it was a school building or not so we were there for a year so i really only spent two years in that Van Buren High School building and yeah and my memory of of speaking of swimming pools and whatever I don't the only sport I remember having any traction in school at all was basketball okay I don't there might have been a football team I have no memory of that my brother Richard was on the fencing team (laughs) (laughs) so I think they went for anything like you said that didn't require maintenance or a whole lot of work because back then the emphasis was so 
100% on academics. I mean, they pushed us hard academically, and uh, the, the kids did really well. Yeah, yeah, I don't think too many of the city schools. I know my, I went to Benjamin Cardozo. Uh, oh. Yeah, and they, they didn't have a, a football team. I know many of the, the city schools didn't because for the, the land itself and you know, yeah. insurance and, and whatnot. But when I, I had to graduate, I'm sure yours was probably a little bit hard, but my graduating class was almost 1,000. I think ours was, I want to say 1,300. I don't know if that's true. I don't know where that number comes from. It just popped into my memory. So, uh, yeah, it's huge. In fact, when I got to college, my college was smaller than my high school. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I had that too. Some some of my friends, I went to school in Buffalo, and they had huh. graduating classes of like 25. And I'm like, uh -huh. half of my science class was 25. Right. You know? So it just right. like... Right. Yeah, you know, they weren't used to that, and I wasn't used to such a small, you know, small right. number. But yeah. yeah. So, was it in high school that you first got a niche for performing? Was it even before that? Well, I grew up in a show business family. My dad was a singer and had always been in show business, and I started singing um, for him professionally when I was a young teen. I mean, my first jobs. I think I was like twelve or thirteen years old, but always is singing. And I certainly flirted with other things. Uh, I thought, oh, I'll be a doctor. I'll be a, I don't know, all these things. I never was good enough in school. <laughs> For, I was smart, but I wasn't one of those, you know, super achievers like so many of my classmates were. And when in high school, uh, I really got into singing much more we had a very wonderful folk singing club. You know, that was very popular in the late 60s. <clears throat> Pardon me, mid-late 60s was folk music. And we had a great folk singing club. We, we had jobs, we worked, we, we, we really did very well. So that gave me a wonderful outlet for singing. I learned how to play the guitar. And, and then in my senior year of high school, I got to be my very, very first musical ever because at Van Buren, again, I think probably because of budget concerns, there was only one show a year, and it was only for seniors. So that was my very first show, not till my senior year of high school. And then, you know, I come to find out when I got into college and into the real world, people had been doing shows since they're 10 years old. I go, you're kidding. <laughs> we weren't allowed. Yeah. So in college, it really solidified. I mean, doing that show my senior year of high school was really important. It's, it showed me how you could put all these things together, singing and acting and being funny and wearing costumes and there's an audience, and, and, I, and I really liked it. And then when I got to college, uh, I was a drama major, and, and, then, and that was that. What was the show that you performed? In high school? In high school, Once Upon a Mattress. Okay. <laughs> which is a wonderful show that's based on the story The Princess and the Pea. And it was the show that on Broadway gave made Carol Burnett a superstar. Right. She was the star of that show and her career just skyrocketed after that. Yeah. What was Broadway the goal or did you want to go towards Hollywood? No, yeah, Broadway. I mean, I wanted to sing. I wanted, I, I really sort of wanted to be a recording artist, but that never happened for me. And uh, it was, you could audition for shows. It was really hard to audition for uh, a, uh, that's my husband. Hello. 
<laughs> That's no <normal>. fault. <laughs> He's wondering where I was. Um, to get a record deal is really hard. And I was coming up in the era of singer-songwriters, Carol King and Laura Nero and all of that. And that was, I didn't do that. And to be in a show, you could just go and audition. And there was a path that you could follow. And I auditioned for things and I got them. So Broadway was always, you know, Broadway for, to this day for many performers is the, the ultimate thing. You know, you talk to movie stars or whoever, they say, oh, I really want to be in a Broadway show. And those years that I spent on Broadway were so happy and so fulfilling and so great that uh, I was so lucky to be able to do that. And obviously coming from a musical, you know, background, you know, with your, your family, they were supportive and they actually would help you and gave you pointers and stuff and advice. So it was an easier transition for you, right? Not, not only pointers, but my father got me my first audition for my first oh. Broadway show. <laughs> Better. <laughs> so that, that really was very helpful yeah. uh, to, I mean, I was right out of college and he was friends with the conductor of Promises, Promises, pardon me. The gentleman told my dad, oh, so-and-so is leaving the show and I, we need to replace her. And my father said, well, Eileen can do that. So they got me an audition and I got the job. Okay. So, yeah, it, it helps when you know people. Right. <clears throat> Absolutely. In, in any profession, that's, that's for sure. So then was the following show, was that Greece? Was that when you got Greece? Yes. Yeah. Uh, after I was on the road for almost a I did the show Promises for a year on Broadway and then nine months on the road came back to New York and a few months later I started doing Greece and I was there for two and a half years. Wow and you obviously played the part of Sandy right? I did yeah. I did yeah. Right. <clears throat> there are also a lot of famous names who cycle through the part of Danny Zuko right? So many yeah <laughs> so many. <clears throat> I once counted and I can't re I can't remember all their names right now but I once counted that I went through 11 Danny Zuko's wow. in the two and a half years that I was there, <clears throat> including, of course, the original Barry Bostwick and Jeff Conaway and Richard Gere yeah. and Treat Williams. And I mean, I, I, the list goes on and on. And uh, uh, it, it was really interesting doing the same show with so many different guys who were yeah. within someone else style right. it was like and it was when i was on the road also nine months being on the road playing different theaters every week or every two weeks you really get good at being flexible you know you could play one week in a house that seats ten thousand people and the next week you're in a house that seats one thousand people so you learned how to always do your best always do your show but sometimes you're going to have to speak louder. <laughs> sometimes you're not going to be able to hear or see the audience. Sometimes the audience is going to feel like they're in your lap. That's really great experience to have. Right. And then with the traveling, obviously the lighting, maybe the stage is a little different, a little creak and dealing with all the different actors, you'd have to kind of adjust to them. So yeah, it definitely kept you on your toes, I'd imagine. Well, when you're on the road, it's always the same actors. You know, the company travels together right. in, a, in a touring company. We picked up a couple of people in one or two cities. Somebody left and somebody came in. But you travel as a troupe. So that was always the same. What would be different would be the band. We traveled with um, a rhythm section, 
but then all the other players would be local players and they were all good i mean every every musician was was great but it's the different theaters themselves it's like do i have a dressing room this week my dressing room is five flights up this time oh i have to change how long it takes me to get from upstairs to downstairs and where am i doing my fast changes it's those it's those kinds of things and and you travel with your own lighting you travel with your own set so all of that stays the same thank goodness yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) What was like, I wouldn't say the worst city, because that's not fair, but like the worst theater or the, the biggest adjust, adjustment for you? There was a theater, I don't remember if it was Minneapolis or St. Paul. We played them right back to back. And one of those two theaters, I think it was St. Paul, but I don't really remember, used to be a big radio uh, studio, if I if I'm remembering correctly, I have to go back and Google and see what what that was. But I remember it was so huge that we literally could not hear the audience reactions. We just couldn't hear them because they were so far away from us and they went so far back. So you're doing your show and you have certain times, you know I'm going to get a great laugh on this. I know that this is going to work. I know that they're going to love this song. They're things that you know. They're touchstones of your show. But when the audience is that far away and you hear nothing coming back, it's like, am I awful? Or are they laughing and I just can't hear them? So and I think it was, I want to say it was St. Paul. But the people in St. Paul were so wonderful. And it was also the coldest place I'd ever been in my life until I went to Salt Lake City. Right. St. Paul was unbelievably cold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been to both places, luckily both in the summer. So it, it was never, oh. was, yeah. I was in St. Paul, not uh, uh, Salt Lake rather. There was used to be a TV show called Touched by an Angel. It was a very popular show starring Della Reese and Roma Downey. And um, I guested one week. And I had to buy a coat and it was so cold and windy that they, I had, they would send someone to walk, and someone to walk from your trailer to to the set because they want to make sure that you get there. But this guy had to literally hold me because it was so windy and so cold that I could bear, I couldn't make it by myself. And I went to Ithaca College, and you know, you're in a, if you went to Buffalo, I mean, you know how cold it is up there. And it, this was Salt Lake was nothing like any place I'd ever been before. Wow, yeah. But great people, great people, wonderful production, had a blast doing it. Right, that's great. Now, when you were on Broadway, you mentioned obviously this, the numerous Danny Zuko's. Which one had the, did you have the best chemistry with? Oh, what an interesting question. I, well, I did, I did the show the longest with Barry Bosbrook and Jeff Conaway. So they were really my Zuko's. They were very different, but they were both directed by Tom Moore because this was very early in the run. The show had been open less than a year when I went into the show. So they had both been directed by the same director and had a similar point of view to, to the role. So it was it was just paradise working with both of them. Um, I loved them both, yeah. and we were devastated when Jeff passed away. Yeah. And Barry is still fine; he's doing great. But they we had such a nice thing going um, that 
I just had nothing but fond memories of them. And the, the other guys were amazing, just amazing. But the, I think because we, yeah, that, that, that's it. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it was, it was also interesting to see Jeff portraying Knicky in the movie. So it was just, it was kind of funny. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. It, I, he sort of played it in a very Zuko way. <laughs> You know, I would see Jeff playing Kanicki. I would see Jeff. Yeah. And I thought he did a really good job. And it, it must have been a big challenge for him to have to move over from his role into another role. Right. But Kanicki is such a great role. It, yeah. And all, all of those, you know, those guys were based on real people that Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey knew. They were their friends. They were real, real people. So there was every performance back then was really grounded in the reality of a real person. And I think that's what made it so special at the beginning. Yeah. Why do you think that show is such a great legacy? I, I, I think it's because of what I just said, because I think the characters are so strong and people can identify, oh my God, I'm a Sandy, I'm a Rizzo, I'm a, you know, I'm a Sunny. And I think it's based on the absolute strength of those characters and the original actors who set those roles were so good at what they did that everybody since sort of has a, a model to follow. Although nobody who does a show now was, you know, we're old enough to be their great grandparents, essentially, for the, you know, for the little kids that, that still, that do the middle school version of Grease or whatever. Yeah. And it was also really funny and it was funky and it was raunchy and none of those things had ever really been seen to that extent on Broadway before. So it was a novelty. And then when people got there, they just fell in love with the characters, I think. When did you uh, decide then to uh, make the trip to Hollywood? I was doing a Broadway show called I Love My Wife, which was uh, the show that I didn't replace and that I originated a role, which is kind of everybody's dream, I think. Every actor's dream, you want to originate a role in a Broadway musical and be on the cast album and all of that. So that was extraordinarily exciting and wonderful. I'd been with the show for coming on to a year. It was a year, a little more than a year. And my husband, Ben Lanzaroni, who's a composer, was a studio musician in New York and an arranger and a conductor. He had a huge career in New York, but he was given the opportunity to move to L.A. to write music for Happy Days. Okay. So at that point, we said, if we're going to try something new, now is the time to do it. Coming fresh off a hit Broadway show, he couldn't possibly been more successful in New York but he wanted to write and this came along and we said we got nothing to lose right we'll go we'll go we thought we were going to stay for three months and it's 40 years later right. yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah he got happy days it was pardon me I said he got happy days so what was your first role when you, you got out there I think the first thing I did was a two-parter of Barnaby Jones okay I think that was the first, my first job. Right. And it was a, it was a really good introduction because it was a very stable, solid show. They'd been on the air for a few years. Everybody in the cast was strong and grown up and 
they knew it worked like it was a machine it worked like a machine very nice very welcoming very easy gave you time to work on your stuff no drama uh, and I said oh I like this I like this these people I like the way this works and happily I just kept working from that point on but I'm and, and to be in a two-parter was was cool because I got my character got to evolve and change and do things and it was fun. That's great. And you, you know, you guys started in a lot of comedies and worked with, you know, amazing, you know, comedic legends. So we'll start with uh, Robin Williams, you know, Mark and Mindy, you guys started. Uh, what was the experience like with him? Because I've heard nothing but, you know, great things, but he's, you know, crazy on the set. <laughs> yeah, crazy on the set until, I mean, and when you say crazy on the set, I mean, just so over top creative. Right. Just a billion ideas about what to do. So you're just, your head is spinning. You, you could pick any one of the 150 versions that came out of his mouth. Any one of them would be yeah. genius. Until the director would say, okay, we're going now. Totally professional, totally in charge of what he was doing. And just did it. And was a great scene partner. Was there for you. When it was your turn to talk, when you were doing your thing, he was right there with you, never tried to upstage you, never tried to take the moment away. It's your turn and I'm going to do everything I can to make you shine. And that is so wonderful to have someone of that caliber be that respectful of of his like a lot of it came from training. I mean, you go to Juilliard, you learn you learn that stuff and people forget sometimes what a highly trained actor he was because as a comic he was yeah who who was better i mean it, he was inc incredible yeah and even and it was fun i mean it was so much fun being on that stage i mean to watch him and jonathan winters just ping pong ping pong ping pong it was like you didn't know you didn't know where to look you didn't know where to look first it was like it's exhausting i'd come home and say i don't know how they keep up that pace i don't know how they do it yeah. it was it was like a a, a you got to go to a show that you were in, but you got to watch it and 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 uh, all all of that rolled into one. Right, and even his dramatic roles, he was you know brilliant in them as well. So just such a mm -hmm. you know tragic loss because he was such a well. So much, so much heart. Yeah. Yeah, so much heart and soul and compassion. I I that just beams out of him. Right. Yeah. One of my all-time favorite shows still is I watch it. All pretty much every day is three's company and you know oh. <laughs> working with john ritter also the late great john ritter um what was that experience like then you had a memorable guest starring spot as mr angelino's i guess side piece i guess so to speak <laughs> i guess yeah. i guess i gotta tell you to this day i will have people say to me oh my god you were on three's company oh you know and I say how could you begin to recognize me from that that was done almost 40 years ago. But the Three's Company fans are like no other. Unbelievable. I had so much fun that week. John Ritter was a doll, the doll of all dolls. And uh, it just, talk about making people feel comfortable. I, I was accepted as a member of the family from the second I walked on the set and 
the job was just to be funny. How could you be funnier? How could you be cuter? How could you be sexier? How could you? I mean, what a what a wonderful uh, way to spend five days, right? <laughs> and and I think it was kind of when I'm not kidding, you know, people can walk in a department store and somebody will just stop me and say, and I think they're going to say something about Mr. Belvedere. Right. No. no, three's company. <laughs> Like you said, the fan fan base that is it's very loyal and it's very you know protective of of that show. And yeah, and and it was oh just so heartbreaking when John passed away. Yeah. It was what is that what does that mean? How that light is gone? That guy is gone. He was so, uh, he was a guy. He he was a great uh, philanthropist. He, he with um, his brother had multiple sclerosis. My oh, my internet connection is unstable. I'm sorry about that. If I'm if I'm wonking in and out, it happens sometimes in my house. No um, okay, uh, and it, it just was. It was a huge loss. Yeah. Yeah. No, because like both of those guys, him and Robin Williams, like they touched everybody. Everyone was like, yeah, you know, because all, all their work, it's, 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 it's a real shame. And no one was a better, you know, physical comedic actor than him. Just, you know, watching his, his work was uh, legendary. It really was. Yeah. And they were both fearless physical comedians. You know, what, whatever the stunt. Okay, let me do this. Can I fall over backwards and do a somersault and, you know, <laughs> stand on my head? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then uh, another one, it was a TV role, but it was a movie, uh, Ladybugs, which my wife and I both love. We right. showed it on uh, recently and working with uh, Ronnie Dangerfield. So what was that experience like? He was an interesting guy. He was, he, he, like we'd be doing a scene or there'd be a scene going on and the, the director or the producer or somebody would feel that a joke wasn't working in, a, in one of the scenes, something wasn't working and say to Rodney, we need a different line here. And he could just rattle off five or six different lines, pick what you want. I say, how do you do that? He says, that's what I do. I'm a writer. I, I do that. What I can give you whatever you need. Just tell me what you need. And I, I saw him do it more than two or three times where whatever he would come be better than what was there originally. And just pick and choose. Which, what do you want? Tell me what you want and I can give it to you. I, I loved that part of working with him is seeing, again, and you know, it's that creative mind. How does it work? How does it spit this stuff out? Yeah, and then, you know, your son in the movie, the late Jonathan Brandeis, who was, you know, a brilliant young actor. Um, how, how was he on the set? Because he, he, he was a great actor. It really, really was a tragic loss. Jonathan, was a, it was a, it was, a, it was, you know, it was a gut punch. You know, he, he was a great kid. He was super smart and a student of film. He knew everything. You know how there are people that know every stat from baseball and, you know, those guys. He was that way with the movies. He knew everything about the movies from, from Charlie Chaplin on. 
just every credit, who the DP was, who the director was, what kind of lighting they were using. He just loved film so much, and he was such a sweetheart and such a nice actor. You know, he was so natural and just uh, so wonderful to work with that when he took his life, it, it's the ravages of depression yeah. that doesn't always show. His parents were, I'm still in touch with his okay. parents, in fact, after all these years. Right. He, um, he was wary of medication. He didn't want to do any drugs because right. he'd seen too many of his friends get in trouble with drugs. And uh, what can I say? It, it's something you don't, don't ever get over, losing one of your children. I, yeah. I still have relationships with, with so many of the people that have played my kids over the years. Yeah. And losing him was really hard. Was there ever like a, did you reach out to anybody? Like a kind of a cry for help? Did he ever? Yeah, do you know him? I, I, I don't know. I wasn't close with him at, the, at, at that point. Right. I was in touch, but not like, you know, it was more like, hey, how are you? What you doing? You know, that kind of thing, as opposed to, getting deep into what was going on. I do know that his friends, I went to his uh, funeral. It wasn't a funeral, it was like a, a get together. And uh, his friends were devastated because it was like, if why didn't he, why didn't he reach out? Why didn't he tell us what was going on kind of thing? And which is not unusual in that situation. You don't want to bother anybody. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's a shame, it really is, yeah. yeah. but. Mr. Belvedere, um, fantastic show. And I know, obviously, we're friends on Facebook. I saw you guys had a uh, Zoom reunion uh, last we month. We did. Oh, no. You should have come. <laughs> I saw it afterwards. I had no idea. I, I uh, would have. That, that, that would have been fantastic. How did that reunion come about? We were supposed to go, the family, we were going to go to New Jersey. There's a big autograph show in New Jersey in April, and we were approached to come to this autograph show. So we were all going to go, and then it was canceled. And um, I, I think it was the, the gentleman that booked us, and the kids said, why don't we, and they, and they told us there was an enormous interest. Go, no. And, they, and people were excited that we were going to be there. Yeah. So the fans, well, you want to do something for the fans? You know, we can. Yeah. We can't go to the autograph show, but we can do something. And then everybody started Zooming, and all this stuff started happening. And Rob said, you know, Rob Stone played the eldest son, Kevin, said, you guys, we could do a Zoom fan event. Do you want to see if we can put something together? And we said, yeah, sure. I don't have to leave the house. I don't have to get on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> so it came together really easily and really quickly. Yeah. And we had a lot of people who came, and it was so much fun. We had a like a rehearsal the week before, so all of us could see, you know, what buttons we have to push, you know, all that stuff. No, you have to mute. No, unmute yourself. You know, all that stuff that everybody does right. on Zoom. And it was the first time that all of us had been together in a, in a couple years. Um, it had been a while. You know, we, we talk, we email, we chat, and we text. But we hadn't all been together in a long time. And we just started laughing. And it was, it really fed, it fed me. You know, it made me feel 
so good to be together with that family who played such a huge part in my life for almost six years. Yeah. No, the, the show was fantastic. I wish they would show more reruns of, of it on, on TV. It's a shame. Yeah, you know, it, it cycles through every few years. So it was the last time I remember it was on was maybe three, four, three years ago, something like that. So maybe, maybe it'll come back. We, we never know. Right, of course. They, yeah. they don't tell us. Right. So when you find out that, you know, your husband, George, you know, basically played by the legendary Bob Uecker, um, what were your initial re reaction? Well, Bob was kind of attached, attached to the show, and we were the ones that they, were, were invited to participate. And I've been a fan of his. I mean, I knew who he was for sure. And I was so looking forward to meeting him because I thought he was so funny. Yeah. So I met him at my final audition, and we hit it off just great. And I, I, I can't imagine anybody else doing that part. And, you know, the thing is, is when you're in a show for a while, they start really writing for you. you they start writing the way you talk and the way you think, and it becomes less trying to create a character and more just being yourself. So he was such a defined character, the Bob Euchre character was so defined from his commercials and his Johnny Carson appearances and his baseball persona that they really were able to mine every bit of his funniness and dryness and all the stuff that he brings to the table. And he's just a funny guy. He yeah. just starts talking and you start laughing so gosh can you imagine what kind of job is that who's luckier who's luckier to right. go spend you know eight hours a day with people whose job it is to make you laugh yeah it's not really a job then yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he, yeah and he like the relationships you know on camera were great with him and christopher yeah he, yeah it was it was it was really brilliant yeah they they were so different they came from such different places. Their lives were so different for each other. And Bob just used candy and sandwiches. And he would, he would just try to get them going, as Bob says. I just love getting them going. Mm -hmm. and, and, but, I, but they really understood what each of them brought to the table right. and respected what each of them brought to the table. I know that Bob had enormous respect for Christopher and his skill as an actor, his technique, his work ethic, his persona, his just, his training. And Christopher loved how funny Bob was. He just, yeah. and he loved that he had such a strong persona and that he could just make us laugh by saying one word, you know, they just had a, they had a great thing going. Right. Uh, absolutely. Out of all, like, you know, the comedic, you know, stars you worked with, who made you laugh the most? Oh, Bob. Bob, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Definitely. Uh, it went on for years that he made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you guessed, you guessed on a show with Robin Williams. I did three episodes of Mork and Mindy. Right. You know, yeah, I laughed a lot. I laughed a lot, but that was three weeks. Bob kept me laughing for almost six years. So <laughs> I think that was pretty good. Right. 
absolutely. And the show had probably one of the best theme songs of, of, of the 80s, no question. You know, very- Isn't that something? Catchy. Yeah. Yeah, very, identif very identifiable, identifiable, Gary Portnoy yeah. and, um, and that the the whoever thought of Leon Redbone yeah, deserves no. a medal. Yeah. To, because that voice. Who would think that voice would go with this little song? But it was the yeah. perfect choice, and it's so recognizable. And yeah. you know, people use it all over the place. It, yeah. It, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Can Can you watch yourself on on camera? Like, if one of your like movies or shows come up, can you sit there and watch yourself? Now I can. I can't when I'm doing something because it's just too painful. And then I'll watch something that I did a long time ago and say, oh, well, what was I so nervous about? I was adorable. I did a good job. What's the problem? But I, I, need, the, I need the time. I need the distance of time to, to be kinder to myself. Yeah. I know you're involved in also like, you know, actors' workshops, right? And like you know, teaching as well. I not actors' workshops. I teach um, vocal performance, singing. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. And acting plays a great part in that, but I've always thought of myself as a singer first and acting kind of came along. So my husband and I teach uh, a, a workshop called Making the Song Your Own Vocal Performance Workshop. Okay. And we teach people how to be better performers, how to really get inside a song and analyze it and figure out how they relate to the song and it's very satisfying. I just love it. I love teaching and I think that it has made me a better singer because I have had to codify what it is that I do. Right. You know, I've been doing this for so long. You hand me any song, I'm going to give you a performance that's going to be fine without even thinking about it. But if I want it to be excellent, now what is it what is it that I tell my students to do? <laughs> so it makes me have to like stop and think and organize and dig in and it's so much fun. It's so satisfying. Has the pandemic affected it? Have you taken like those classes or those classes like virtually now? Yeah. We can't get together. Um, singing is one of the most deadly things you can do, unfortunately. They're finding out that performance and singing is just not a good idea, and it's it's heartbreaking. It's decimated my industry just completely. So what we're doing is I'm not really teaching my students, but we get together every other week on Zoom. Right. We talk about what's been going on this week and whatever, and then everybody sings a song. And I have been doing no teaching. Uh, I may ask them pretty soon, you guys, you know, this has been fun, but you want to learn something yeah. and see what they have to say. I didn't want to add any more pressure to anybody's life right now. But many of my colleagues, my teaching colleagues, are teaching remotely. They're teaching on Zoom or there are other platforms that people are using. My cousin Randy Graff, who's a big fancy Broadway star, is a professor at Manhattan School of Music. She teaches in the musical theater program there. And she had to finish the semester with her performance students yeah. like this. And uh, she said it was a challenge, but ultimately everybody rose to the occasion and is learning and uh, they, they made it work. All right. Now, do you think Broadway can survive after all of this? Yes, I do. I don't know how long it's going to take, but Broadway is so important, number one, to the economy of New York City. 
It's a huge economic driver to the city. New York City without Broadway is what? I don't know. What is it? So, and it's so many, not only um, the tourist dollars, the audience dollars, but so many jobs. Yeah. You know, how many hundreds of people work on shows, not only performers, but yeah. there are so many other jobs. It has to come back. I don't think it's going to be in a minute. I think it's going to take a while until we have treatment and we have a vaccine and we we know that we're not going to be putting anybody in danger by the force of our voices because that's what we do. We have our bodies and our voices and we propel a lot of air and that's exactly what you can't have. But it's been so sad. My daughter, Nika Graf Lanzaroni, is also a performer, a musical theater performer, and she was um, doing an Broadway show, a very successful uh, revival of The Unsingable Molly Brown off Broadway. And we were in New York and luckily were able to see like the last two performances that they did before Broadway closed down. So everybody is out of work, which is one reason why the Actors Fund has been so incredibly important right now. I'm officer of the fund. And not only Broadway, as you said, what's going to happen with Broadway, but what's going to happen with film, what's going to happen with television, what's going to happen with um, the performers at Disney parks. It's a huge, huge industry. And the Actors Fund has just stepped up in a remarkable way to help the thousands and thousands of people. I mean, we have distributed through Actors Fund money and um, 12 other funds that we're administering money for over $12 million in the past weeks. That's six times as much money as we usually give out in a year. So it's been, it's been really hard. And we're just praying that things come under control so that everybody can get back to work. I mean, New York needs Broadway. The world needs theater. Yeah. It wouldn't be such a big deal if it weren't so important. Right, absolutely. Now, how can people donate to the funds if they want to? Oh, thank you so much for asking. You can go to actorsfund.org, and there are buttons that you can click that you can make a donation. And realize this is not just a charity for Broadway actors. This is for uh, all the people that set the lights and the people that make the costumes and the people that write the press releases. And the when you watch any show on TV, all of those jobs, all of those people are not working. Where, where would we be right now without watching stuff? I know. I can't imagine what would the world be like without the connection that we've had. Everybody talking about what are you watching on Netflix? What are you watching on Amazon? All of that is brought to you by people that are no longer working. So the arts are phenomenally important to the economy of our country and to the heart and soul of human beings. So actorsfund.org, reach out if you if there's a Netflix show you like, reach out. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, before I go, we mentioned Broadway. You came out with a, uh, a CD of lullaby songs inspired by Broadway classics, right? And yeah, well, quite a while ago now. But uh, it was it's called Bro Babies Broadway Lullabies, and we took Broadway show tunes. My husband's a brilliant arranger, and we turned them into lullabies for babies. And we were nominated for a Grammy for our CD, and. Uh, 
it's beautiful if I do say so myself. <laughs> and it's still available on CD Baby. And uh, yeah, give it a listen. It's really nice. Yeah, I, I heard some of it. It's really good. Thank you. Nice for your new baby, huh? Absolutely. Rather than hear the same, yeah. uh, same one or two tunes every night. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but Eileen, this was great. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much and best of luck with everything. Thank you, Noel. Thank you for having me. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay home, wear a mask. <laughs> And a special thanks to Eileen for joining me today. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first and all one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud is also on Podbean. And go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise, t-shirts, hoodies, phone cases, they're all there. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then. <laughs>